And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Well, good Sunday afternoon. Welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel and Today, uh, we have Nathan Dashamaker, and uh, Elias is on too, but he's kind of joined us because I wanted to introduce him uh, to Nathan. Uh, I, I consider Elias one of the uh, sages of the freedom movement. He's been there a long time, just like I have, and he had never actually met Nathan and I said, well, you need hope for the future of Montana and this country. And I wanted, uh, I, I really wanted to make sure that Elias had a chance to uh, hear what you're all about. So I invited him to actually come on. And if he has questions, uh, that he could certainly direct them to you. Anyway, with that said, Nathan is going to be talking today about the United States and the fact that we are a godly country that was formed under the uh, the Protestant Reformation uh, system of government that was created by our founders that's based on the Ten Commandments, that's based on the Christian faith, and it's based on very, very straightforward, very simple principles of stewardship, ownership, private land ownership, ownership of your uh, emotions, your feelings, your right to speak and to uh, act in any way you want, as long as it doesn't uh, uh, negatively affect your neighbors, uh, and the fact that we are now losing so many of those rights because people don't understand the history that went behind the creation of our founding documents. Nathan is one young man that is really expert in this. And in fact, he's in the process of writing a book on that very subject. And um, I always enjoy just kind of sitting back and uh, get the conversation going, turn it over to Nathan. And he just, uh, Man, he can roll with it, and he is one very bright young man, and I'm tickled to death to have him as a friend. So, Nathan, welcome to the program. 
I want to introduce you to Elias Alias. He was uh, the gentleman who formed, uh, was one of the founding members of Oath Keepers, but he also has a group that he's had for over 20 years now, I think 22 years, called the Mental Militia. And he works on many of the same kind of things that you're going to be talking about today. So I wanted you and Elias to have a chance to meet each other. Uh, thank you both for being here. And uh, Nathan, uh, let's get started. You want to talk about how the Bible is so absolutely essential. The Protestant Bible is so absolutely essential to the formation of this country and how it became really part of the whole program uh, that created, first of all, the Declaration of Independence, then the uh, uh, Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the idea of limited government of, by, and for the people. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Uh, it's always always a privilege to come on. I just want to, you always talk me up, but I just want to thank, thank you and, and you for all these years, putting on a, a forum, connecting the dots and, and just your, your work, uh, in the past on like kind issues and the property rights, uh, movement and, and all that good stuff as you uh, went through in the introduction there. And also Elias, uh, good to, good to meet you. I think I've heard, I think I've heard you on Dan's program, uh, in the past, uh, so never, never met you in person, but heard you, heard you a little bit in some couple programs, but, uh, so yeah, Dan, with, with the introduction, I guess, you know, we were talking the other day, you know, it started quite a few years ago with me studying into, uh, how Marxism and, uh, evolutionary doctrines uh, that led into the the socialist Marxist frameworks of modern governmental systems. The 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 men behind that recognized that the only way to really dismantle Western civilization was to sever us from our heritage. And Antonio Gramsci wrote about that in his prison diaries of the long march through the through the institutions. And they've sure done it uh, in many respects. I was an article just came on uh, WND this morning, which is pretty, I believe this morning, pretty timely for our discussion today. Um, and it was posted by Margaret Spellings. And the title was, you won't, you won't believe how many Americans can't pass basic civics tests. Um, and she noted that a healthy, healthy system government and Western government requires not only popular participation, but an understanding of who we are, where we come from and how and why our system of government functions the way it does. Um, so we have citizens of this country that can't even pass a basic civics test for that. You know, people come in here to be claim citizenship have to go through. And that civics test isn't even really that extensive. So with all that said, um, uh, I started four or five years ago, talked to you about that a little bit, Dan, uh, writing a work, um, was going to be an article and kind of turned into a book now, but it's, it's rediscovering our heritage, understanding the proper role of law and government. 
And with my studies of common law over time and our starting with the Puritans and the early reformers, um, I started to realize that the West didn't start as I was taught with the American constitution or, you know, our government and our system didn't start with, with the declaration of independence and the constitution. That was really just a culmination of a long process what I call an unbroken continuity of historical record that goes back to creation. And that's what the European settlers that settled and, and homesteaded this country brought with them. They didn't claim some kind of time immemorial indigenous knowledge. And we, we just know this because this and this and this, uh, there's a record that, that backs that up. Um, so I've taken a, a, a significant interest in, in, understanding that myself, reconnecting with that heritage, and I'm trying to now shift gears to create more opportunities and forums to uh, teach common law principles um, based on the Judeo-Christian uh, framework of Western civilization and, and who we are as a people. Well, uh, Nathan, without an understanding of where we came from, we can't uh, really predict where we're going to end up. And uh, so that's kind of the situation we're in right now. That ignorance that you're talking about, just something as, as basic as uh, just uh, elemental uh, uh, civics class is something that has been intentionally uh, ignored, intentionally made uh, uh, completely different than the original intent. Uh, we have a hundred years of really rewriting the whole historical context of our system of government, and it's been done intentionally to convince us that uh, socialism or Marxism or one of these other isms is perfectly uh, fine within the American system. That is just an absolute lie. It is not true. And uh, it shows how diabolically evil the people who are aligned against the basic premise of freedom, how, how incredibly corrupt and diabolical they are. Yeah. Well, and you're right. Our system has no place for that. And I think back to education and knowing knowing where we come from as a people, I would submit that the out-of-control law and policy we see in federal bureaucracy, state bureaucracy, and, and this huge pro proliferation of rules that reach into the nitty-gritty aspects of our daily lives from our homes to our business and, and to our travel, et cetera, is directly linked to the people's knowledge of our history and our heritage and who we are as a people. So when you see law mass make massive shifts in law and policy in a, in a society, in a culture or a civilization, that's symptomatic of an already existing shift of philosophical thinking in relationship to fundamental truth. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wrote a piece here a few, few weeks ago on who is fit for office. And one of the points I made in that is that 
the the free republic of our constitutional republic, the liberty that results from it, is not the result of Christian ethics. It's more the result of the doctrine of human depravity. Our founders were um, very uh, closely uh, united with the teaching of, of the Protestant Reformation and the Bible and the scriptures in relationship to man's condition. Mm-hmm. And they didn't exclude themselves from the equation of being corruptible. And most of our founders who penned our founding documents acknowledged extensively, especially when in positions of power and authority, even the best of us um, are corruptible. So when you're so when you're choosing somebody for office or for leadership, it's not simply what values or ethics does he hold to. Um, that's important. But I would submit the real question is what solvent does he have to resist the corrosive influence of corruption, especially when you're being assaulted from every side? Um, And we see history as as, as an example of even good men in positions um, falling into some some not so good of situations. And our founders were brilliant, in my opinion, uh, in recognizing that. And the way they established government was really based on you know, where our commonwealths, early colonial commonwealths and charter governments was, it wasn't all of us coming together and saying, we're all such good people and let's just create this nice law that perfectly governs our lives. It was, let us establish a framework, uh, a covenant agreement between us to mutually benefit from our fruits and our labors and to protect one another from plundering one. Um, And you constitute a force in government to, to to enforce the keeping of covenants. Our whole constitutional republic is about covenant keeping. The, the word federal comes from the Latin term fotis, which means covenant. It's a covenant government. Um, so that's another example, I guess. What, what I'm trying to do in this work I'm writing also is to to reconnect part of reconnecting to our heritage is resurrecting some of that language that we've let go out of circulation in our conversations and how we talk about law and government and man's relationship with his fellow human being and our relationship to our God. We need to bring back that language and communicate it with clarity um, here, regardless of whether people receive it or or well or not. Um, So well, you know, your your point is absolutely spot on because what you're saying is uh, something that was very, very essential with our, our original uh, Constitution and Bill of Rights, and that is it was a negative set of rules. It wasn't handing government unlimited power it was telling government the few things that they would be allowed to do and all the other things that they had to stay out of, that they had to leave to the individual and to the states. And this is something that's been completely turned on its head in the last 120 years. And it's only that that has allowed this incredible shift in our perception of 
other forms of government being viable, like socialism, uh, like Marxism, like communism, those are totally invalid governments and ideas within the original constitutional framework. And only by violating the very basic premise of our system of government can they sell that line of crap uh, to a very, very ignorant people who now believe the nonsense because they've been fed it for over 100 years. Exactly. And, you know, Benjamin Franklin, I believe it was, said, when a people become irreligious and corrupt, they have more need of masters. Um, back to, because our our founders set up a system to secure the principle of self-government. Um, that's why we have compound republics in individual states that constitute a sovereign power. The Supreme Court, in many cases, has spoken to this issue and the Supreme Court through our history has always said the reason there's the separation of powers, not only between legislative, executive and judicial, but between compound republics of states and the federal government is not to protect the state, but to safeguard the interests of the individual. Right. Supreme Supreme Court has ruled on that uh, in many different scenarios over the history of this country. So Marxism and other collectivist forms of government, um, you you lose sight of the individual in the group. You now become this unit in this massive uniformity of thinking. And that's why Marxism, communism, collectivist systems stagnate um, not only just human uh, liberty in the basic sense, but um, the leisures of life that that gives us the ability to be to to be artistic and and write and have literature and and write music and 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 whatnot. You know, communist socialist frameworks. It's ironic because it's usually the the, the musicians and the artists that, for some reason, are pushing for communism and socialist government, <laughs> unbeknownst to them that if they succeed and they establish that system, and you do away with car. Uh, uh, capital markets and 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 free market enterprise and safeguarding the rights and property of the individual uh you lose the frameworks to be able to express yourself as an individual person in your art or or in or in different ways so mm-hmm. but but what i'm getting to is our 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 system in the west is based on principles of self-government that's the foundation it is and and uh you know, you said something that's important that we're seeing right now play out, and that is the original concept of the states. Each state was actually its own sovereign. It was a a, a separate entity that agreed to become a part of a federal system, but would retain their rights to individual choice under their state constitution, as long as it fit under the U.S. uh, Constitution, which was very wide open. What we're seeing now is that play out in a big way. Uh, States like California that have gone completely over the edge, Washington's another one, Oregon is another one, they are bleeding population and losing 
the 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 actual people who create wealth the businesses and the entrepreneurs and all the people who uh, created the success that those states had are now fleeing like crazy to go to places like Montana and Idaho and Arizona that are more free and don't have this incredible uh, socialist network that they're trying to imply on the people. So that's why we have states in the first place, to give people a choice. If you don't like where you're living, you can move to another state or another jurisdiction, and you can have uh, a much more uh, open situation if that is the choice of the people there. That is an important concept because right now we're seeing it on a national level. We're seeing how so many of these so-called progressive states are now upside down financially. They are running people out right and left, and uh, they're creating open sewers within their own societies. Yeah. Well, and it's it's kind of ironic because states like California, they're using, they're claiming a whole bunch of sovereign jurisdiction that you know, I always argue states should should flex their muscles a little more. But, you know, Washington and California are a <laughs> an example of states illegitimately exercising their reserved powers because there is no reserved power uh, to violate and step away from the original covenants. Um, like Montana Constitution, for example, Wash- I don't know about California, but Washington Constitution has similar language. But the people of the states are guaranteed to a system of self-government. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, what's happened in California and some of these other states, my concern is is if if we don't start reconnecting to our heritage, where we come from as a people and understanding uh, those foundational principles and therefore developing the confidence. It's like what I said to a friend the other day, you can't build patriots on sound bites. A patriot is somebody that's so thoroughly established in fundamental principles and who he is and where he's come from that he's willing to stand even when the whole world's against him. Uh, somebody on living on sound bites isn't going to last long in that situation. So th- thank, thankfully, like you said, Dan, that's part of the brilliance of our founders too. We saw that through the COVID with the different states that basically told the feds to take a hike to some extent and and exercise their state sovereignty to to look after their own people and to govern according to their own sovereign jurisdictions. Um, but they're causing such damage to the to the economy as a whole. These other states and our federal government, the way they're shutting down our industries and violating fundamental tenets of property. That's my concern: is you you, you cause systemic damage through the economy. Um, that is intertwined with all these other states. Um, so there's there's a lot of work to do and ground to recover um, in states that have some semblance of sanity in them um, to, to, to be reestablished in those principles and to safeguard uh, the rights of the individual person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's talk about the... Uh the covenant of the church, the Protestant Reformation, 
and the understanding of uh, what liberty, true liberty is and unalienable rights, how, how uh, God-given rights are what our heritage is. It's not government handed out rights, it's God-given rights, and that is directly linked with the people that came over here to form this country that were escaping religious persecution. They were escaping monarchies in Europe. The reason they came here was to create a society that gave them the freedom to live in absolute liberty. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I I say in a conversation about our origins as a nation is what preceded the Revolutionary War? And most people don't provide the answer, at least the one I'm seeking, and that is the Great Awakening. Um, and you had 150 years of self-government under the charter governments of colonial America um, that developed that were directly a result of the that's that stemmed directly out of the Protestant Reformation and what took place in uh in England and Germany and, and Switzerland and the other countries of Europe over a four hundred year time period, essentially. I mean, basically from it goes back even in clear back to like the six and eight hundreds with the early uh Normans and the Danes. The word law actually, by the way, is not an Anglo Saxon term. We got that from the Danes and the Normans. Um, that's where Normandy comes from. That's where the Normans eventually settled in, in Normandy in that region. But you have this huge past of heritage carrying forward. And, uh, and then you come into Martin Luther and well, or before Martin Luther, you have the Hussite wars and Bohemia and John Huss, um, who stood against the papacy and the free preaching of the scriptures and, um, and then about a hundred years later, Martin Luther came on the stage with his thesis that he pounded on the church door in Wittenberg that uh, started a massive movement. And the, and the interesting thing about the reformers is their whole battle, all the other things we're fighting over, freedom of speech and you know our Second Amendment rights and all these other things, those things are subsequent to what's in the first amendment, which freedom of speech is within that, but it really comes down to the freedom of religion and the, and to peaceably assemble and to petition government for redress. Um, that first amendment is a profound reality and culmination of several centuries of martyrs who laid down their lives for nothing other than the free access to the word of God. And that that's what revolutionized government because when you can have a have a monopoly on the word or on a, a priest class system that keeps the people in the dark, um, you can you can govern them with an iron fist and 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 keep mm -hmm. them ignorant to some extent. And we're going back to that today. That's what I'm getting to in kind of this rediscovering our heritage is the more we sever ourselves from those founding principles and, and the men who uh, sacrificed virtually everything to lay the foundations for what came to be reforms and how government functions. Um, it goes back to the free access um, of the word of God. And, you know, they, now we have uh, Bibles printed 
all over the place sitting around collecting dust. Um, you know, we put our hands on them and swear on them when we go into office or we go into some positions and, and take oaths to our constitution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but very few actually take it as a lamp under their feet and the rule of their lives. And back to, you can't create patriots out of sound bites. Um, that's, uh, that's what the, the Roman papacy and the powers of Europe found in relationship and thank God, even during that time, because they had separation of powers to some extent, even in Luther's time, because Luther would have been burnt at the stake if it wasn't for a local magistrate that protected him from the emperor (laughs) and from the Pope. So, Mm -hmm. so we have these sovereign jurisdictions that allows for the propagation of truth. Um, and we have that history um, that's what's so unique and that's what they've severed us from. That's what's so unique about, uh, uh, our, the American heritage and the, and the European heritage and our common law going back is back to, back to what I said. Now we're facing today with modern policy. What, what we're facing in our government under the Biden administration is indigenous knowledge. I mean, they're, they're withdrawing millions of acres of lands um, on the basis of indigenous knowledge. I mean, Biden, when he withdrew the monument in Arizona a few weeks ago, said, you know, from time immemorial, uh, this has happened and the Indians have been here and, 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 and ties in a bunch of spiritualism into it. And they're talking about, he can't even remember remember what he had for lunch. Uh, anybody, that uh, speaks uh, with a forked tongue. It's uh, Joe Biden. Well, with that, so, you know, they're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Meanwhile, we have, we only have five to 6,000 years, irregardless of whether you believe in Jesus or the Bible or anything like anything along those lines. We only have five to 6,000 years of recorded human history um, records. Mm-hmm. And, that's what's unique about, you know, we have a standing in relationship to upholding the rule of law in the West because we have the unbroken continuity of historical record in relationship to the scriptures and classical literature. Um, but they want us focused on a few bone scraps in a cave and something somebody drew on a wall um, sometime in time immemorial to be the thing that's going to guide us in establishing policy on how we access and utilize our resources. Right. Based on a a culture that was in raw nature in a continual state of war and lived in subsistence living. Mm -hmm. As a stone age culture, as a stone age culture. Virtually, you know, most native American tribal systems did not even have a wheel. Uh, So you had a significant stagnation. So why the question is, why would we be, establishing policy based on these time immemorial i mean we have there's something in federal statute it's called the data quality act that requires federal agencies to meet integrity standards reproducibility mm-hmm. etc utility for information used to establish policy and rulemaking um none of that criteria is met by the time immemorial indigenous knowledge that's claimed to establish policy and landscape scale withdrawals of lands and resources um, to the contrary, the Christian perspective, the reason we don't have grizzly bears in central Montana anymore is because we exercised our dominion and, uh, removed them and the threat of them to our livestock and to our lives and our, <laughs> our family and our kids, et cetera. Um, 
you know, some people think that's a bad thing. There's no longer grizzly bears there. We got to bring them back. But when we allow those things to happen in policy, it's an assault on the very heritage mm-hmm. of who we are as a people that are indig- that that we're not indigenous. We we're industrious. We take uh, the raw resources of the world around us and convert them into material products that are useful for our own substance. And then the excess of that, when we're allowed to keep it and have the, the, the fruit of that without unjust interference by government or others, we then can barter and trade that in a market economy with our fellow man under mutual covenants. And that's what our system is mutually beneficial. It, 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 uh, obviously, you know, when they, uh, rail against uh, Western civilization and our culture, they're railing against uh, the very thing that made the the success that we enjoy today and that created such an abundance that we can bring the whole world to that abundance if they just leave us alone. Exactly. You know, and, and and back to your former former uh, statement on and directing the conversation to the Protestant Reformation. I just wanted to mention something before I forgot. So we we filed. We have the American Prairie Reserve in Central Montana buying up a ranches, uh, trying to consolidate a total of three point five million acres to put back into pre Columbus or pre Lewis and Clark. Um, conditions of this this 3.5 million acre nature preserve um so we we equipped the record in central montana you know county governments grazing districts ranchers farmers equipped the record in the in the permitting process through the blm on this apr initiative which they're trying to change the class of livestock from cattle to indigenous bison and remove all the stock water remove all the interior fencing etc so we, we filed, so we equipped the record all the way through. And then there's protest, guess what? There's 30 day protest periods and appeals periods. And this is all getting appealed right now in the federal grazing courts. But the point is when you read through the protest procedures in the in the code of federal regulations for the grazing administration, you know what it says? If 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 the Protestant files a protest, the 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 acting officer has to take into consideration what's put forward and provide a response. You know, I was working with a, a group on this that were filing comments, and I looked at I I read that out of the Code of Federal Regulations, and I said, "You guys are all Protestants now." <laughs> <laughs> Protestants, uh, yeah, yeah. So isn't that interesting? Two thousand and twenty-one, when in two thousand and nineteen, when we were filing these. The Code of Federal Regulations refers to us as Protestants and hmm. protesting a federal executive branch decision in relationship to huge amounts of resources in the heart of Montana. Where do you think that came from in the Code exactly. of Federal Regulations? That 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 started back back with those Martin Luthers and John Husses. They, they didn't have a code of law at that point, save the Magna Carta and the Bible itself. Um that that gave them a basis to stand on to protest what they protested. Right. They protested out of their own conscious conviction of right and wrong and what God had directed them from the scriptures because of what they did 
and what they laid down 600 plus years ago, I now can stand on a code of federal regulations and federal rulemaking processes with the Protestant language embedded therein that requires those acting officials to respond and address the protests coming from those who are issuing those through those avenues. The problem is, Dan, we're not, we have these procedural avenues in law today on multiple, multiple spectrums. The environmental groups are utilizing this left and right. So, uh, so I just wanted to share that. That's an example of how we have even in our modern structure of law today to hold accountable government actors and officials, the language that began with our forefathers six, 700 years ago who laid down their lives for nothing other than the freedom of conscience and the free access to the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I'm loving it, uh, Nathan, because that is exactly right. That the, you, every basic terms that are in our laws now and in our federal rulemaking come very much from that that framework of ideas that came from the Protestant Reformation. And you're right. Uh, Protestant, Protestant, you know, you can call it what, whatever, you can pronounce it however way you want, but it is in fact part of our very character and history that created our system of government. And it goes back, as you say, it goes back, well, it's, it's pre-Magna Carta. Uh, we are talking things that were, uh, that were created to try to, um, let's say, uh, dull the power of the throne, to dull the power of a monarch, and to give individual rights to people so that they did not have to be enslaved by the state from time immemorial. (laughs) I love it. You know, the time immemorial thing. I mean, you know, all I hear is this crap about how the indigenous cultures were this utopian, wonderful thing, and life was so wonderful and good. I mean, before the Spaniards hit the American, uh, the uh, North American, or uh, for that matter, the Caribbean, and brought horses to the continent, uh, Native Americans were completely on foot. And you know, we hear these wonderful things about how they they took such great care of nature and all this. They also would take a whole tribe of Indians and chase a herd of buffalo off a cliff and then maybe butcher a, a tenth of them and leave the others uh, with broken legs and dying uh, because they did not have the tools to manage how they ran this whole herd off of a cliff. I mean, there's, there, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just using basic logic. Okay, um, they had fire. They did have that apparently, but other than that, there wasn't a whole lot that made their lives all that great. And the in the reason there were only two million. Uh, Native Americans in uh, North America uh, when Columbus, you know, hit the Caribbean and and we came here was because they were busy 
killing and enslaving one another. They were truly communist cultures that worked definitely as, as a communal system, but they were also incredibly uh, tribal, and they were very much in, in uh, the idea of enslaving and capturing and killing their opposition so that they could increase the, the size of the tribe. Yeah, well, there's, it's like what Frederick Bastiat said, there's only two ways to acquire property. You either earn it from the sweat of your brow or you take it from somebody that's earned it from the sweat of your brow. So I think because tribal systems being largely purely in a state of nature, um, according to Thomas Hobbes, they were in a state of war, therefore, you know, so state of war is a huge uh, impediment to any kind of progress in civilization. And, and I would also submit, I've been reading Charles Hodge's work, second, his second volume, his systematic theology on anthropology. And he made the point that there is not, a, there is not an authentic example in history of any tribal barber, barbarian system developing out of that into civilization. We have civilization always derives from civilization. And it started with God's original creative order. Um, so it's the opposite of modern anthropology, which propagates, you know, slow progressive processes of man's development over long periods of time through the stone and bronze and the metals. And, and that's another point that Hodge makes in that work too, is that unless you can prove that a stone age prevailed across the entire earth contemporaneously, it does nothing. It avails nothing if you can prove that at one point the European continent was destitute of a knowledge of the metals. We have we have places in the world today, in some African countries, and and, and other corners of the world that are still in a subsistence Stone Age level. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's always been the case historically. But I would say people naturally don't historically. We have no record of man evolving with that term into a civilized state but a, a devolving and we're seeing that even with all you know we're so sophisticated today with our computers and our and our gadgets but if we're not careful those will be the very mechanisms of our own abolition and c.s lewis wrote a book in the 40s called that it's called the abolition of man very profound little book um but you know, I don't see man making himself. I see man unmaking himself mm -hmm. um, in, in the way things are going and in, in, in the trajectory. And like you're saying with these tribal governments, Dan, is to return to tribal systems is not is not a, is not progress. Right. That's that's going the opposite direction. Um, and some of those systems in certain contexts and more moderate climates and you had enough people there, you, you, you could maybe make it work for a time. But um, nature's harsh. Um, you go out, I'd like to take most of these people that are obsessed with this tribalism and time and memorial stuff and take them out north of my place and the muscle shell breaks and leave them without any material products of civilized man. Um, and week, uh, within a week, they'll be going mad. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not a joke. No. Absolutely right. And uh, I, I use that very example myself. And now we do programs, we do quite a few of them actually on what's happening now in 
South Africa, uh, because they are going back to tribalism. And they're going back to tribalism because the ANC, the African National Congress, um, is a communist organization, and they are eliminating much of the, uh, I guess what I would call the civilized barriers that create a uh, an advanced civilized society. They're eliminating many of them because they don't understand. Tribal cultures do not understand free markets, ideas of independence and liberty and the idea of uh, free thought and the ability to uh, create good things out of the liberty to make choices, okay? They don't understand that. They're communists. And uh, you look at what's going on right now in South Africa. I mean, in 1990, before uh, apartheid turned the whole thing over to the communists, to ANC and the EFF and all these other communist groups, um, South Africa was the 17th richest nation in the world. Now, this is a nation, at that time, they had 6 million white people and 20 million blacks, and they were one of the richest nations in the world because they had civilization. And it was based on Christian culture because it was Dutch Reformed uh, Christian culture that had settled South Africa and had actually moved into the Cape in 1652. But I, I can't get into the whole the whole diatribe about it. I don't mean to do that. But what we're seeing now, South Africa in the last 30 years has gone backwards. They're now number 47. They've gone from number 17 to number 47, and they're sliding uh, one or two nations every year uh, going in the opposite direction because they're trying to turn a free market system into a communist system under tribalism. Talk about a failure. There, there's no better example in the world than South Africa. Absolutely. Well, it's a case example, and I think uh, I think it's happening to, to lesser extent and to some, in some cases, greater extent in certain contexts, even in the United States, just through different mechanisms than what's being used in South Africa has a very uh, different history than we have, but there's some, some crossover parallels um, for sure. But I, back to, you mentioned the Dutch reformers back to the concept of self-government. The thing, the reason the Christian ethic uh, ties so heavily into the concepts of liberty and freedom and self-government that undergird our, constitutional republic and our laws in the west is because each man will stand or fall before his maker the christian doctrine is pretty clear you don't go through with all your buddies on your shoulders um each man will give an account for his life his words and his actions in this world uh to 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 a to a god who to, from whom there is no appeal um, and that's the thing is that's why all government, just government must be limited. 
because only God has the authority to be to function arbitrarily in relationship to individual persons. Um, we don't, as individuals, have enough information to micromanage our neighbors' lives. And interestingly enough, God Himself, even though He alone has that authority, doesn't use such authority. Right. Notice He didn't have police checks on the way to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or neither did He chain Adam and Eve to a tree to keep them from going there. You know what do you say? You eat of that fruit, <laughs> you will die. That's right. It's choice. It's Negative individual law. choice. It's discernment and individual choice. And the punishment comes after the crime. Right. There's no preventative justice. Um, and if anybody could execute preventative justice perfectly, who do you think that would be? God himself. And the fact that God has never instituted a system of preventative, preventative justice in the whole chronology of his word and the history of man in this world. Um, I guess God executes preventative justice in the in the harsh in, in the reality of the of the warning. The only thing preventative isn't that he chains you to a tree to keep you from doing it. It's that he lays out a consequence if you act in such a way. Mm-hmm. And the ancient system, 400 years of self-government in ancient Israel, that's exactly how it functioned under God's law. There were no police. All the crimes were to be brought by two or three witnesses and to be established thereby. You know, look at how many things are being brought through our courts today with no witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's just ridiculous. And January but those 6th. are fundamental. Exactly. Those people have been robbed of their rights to habeas corpus mm-hmm. and and other fundamental common law principles that safeguard the individual from arbitrary power. Um, so God himself doesn't execute that kind of a social justice. Um, I, I like what Vance Havner used to say is if, if there was a social gospel in the day of the prodigal son, somebody would have given him some soup and a sandwich and he never would have went home to the father. <laughs> So there it's one thing yeah we got to feed people we got to help people but the christian context of helping people is not enabling them in their own uh futility it's it's getting them on their own two feet so back to what i'm getting to here is we can't have free governments and limited governments without individual people who can stand on their own two feet keep their covenants the two there's two fundamental laws that govern all just systems and law in this world. And that is keep your agreements, contract law, and don't encroach upon others. And that's tort law. All just law flows from those two fundamental principles and they're negative. It's it's not micromanaging the nitty gritty, you know, God said, don't eat that fruit. But then he also said, you're free, free to eat everything else. Um, you have total jurisdiction and sovereignty over the creation in which I have placed you in. And really, the, in my opinion, the, the, the people, you know, all the snake and the, the tree and knowledge of good and evil, what that represented isn't just an apple on a tree. What that represents is God makes the rules. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when, when man eats of that apple, it's man giving God his walking papers and saying, I'm going to decide who, 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 and it was that not Satan's deception to Adam and Eve. He, he doesn't want you to do that because he knows you'll be as, as he is knowing good from evil. You, you'll decide for, for yourself what's right and wrong. Um, and that's where we are in our culture today. And back to what I've been, what I've been saying is we're there because we've severed ourselves from the Judeo-Christian heritage 
that creates a basis for individuality to begin with because we're all going to face God as individual persons. And, and, you know, you see that at the end of the Bible in revelation, when Jesus is outside of the church of Laodicea and knocking on the door and he doesn't say, Hey, Hey, group of people in there, come out here. No, he says, if there's anyone who hears my voice, I will come in and sup with him and he with I, his appeal was to the individual, not the group. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in. And I love what John Knox, the great reformer said, one man with God constitutes a majority. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's where we need to be in my opinion, because that's the winning side. And <laughs> I'm, I'm loving we... this. I, uh, Nathan, I, uh, uh, Elias has been quiet for an hour. I wanted him to uh, get a chance to know you through your incredible uh, knowledge base, your incredible, incredible wisdom for a young man. I mean, you're what, 31 years old, 30, 31, yeah, 32, 32. Um, Elias is, um, like me, he's a senior, uh, senior citizen. He's even more <laughs> senior than I am. But uh, Elias, uh, is there hope for the future when we have people like uh, Nathan and Alex Newman and some of these brilliant young people who are uh, picking up the, the standard and carrying it forward? Hi, Dan. Uh, good to meet you there, Nathan. We'll uh, talk again sometime, I'm sure. Uh, I, I, I see no hope for the masses. I see there is always hope for the individual within the mass. And self-ownership is the key to individuation. Until we learn our civics, and how to relate to each other through love's thought system and through sensitive anticipation of something bigger than man involved in the presenting of our daily uh, scenarios. We're just not going to make much progress. But uh, Nathan, you mentioned civics early in the show. And I've just become aware of something called tactical civics. And I'm wondering if you've been familiar with them yet. It's an organization. I think it's tacticalcivics.com. Yeah, ta tacticalcivics.com. And I actually was introduced to that by uh, Steve Wagner about, I'm going to say, five or six years ago. Um and, uh, you know, basically it is a way to get uh, government back in the hands of the individuals and local government. It is a return to the, uh, the idea of bottom-up uh, local and individual sovereignty. Yes, indeed. The, the individual is the foundation of the family. The family is the foundation of the community, and the community is the foundation of how our culture is developed, our, our system of, of society, social order. Um, 
I'm I'm fascinated and encouraged to see young people like Nathan and and others that you and I know who are questioning the narrative, uh, questioning external authority. Personally, Nathan, I'm I'm radical. I uh, I see an inner authority coming through my soul as being more uh, well deserving of my attention more than any man-made external authority. Uh, I like the founders. I, I I really appreciated the Articles of Confederation much more than the what, what Patrick Henry called consolidated government that James Madison tricked us into. Uh, but all governments made by men are man-made institutions. The individual is as being separate from the collective or while he's within the collective, as we're all humans, the individual is, to me, the answer to everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, 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 and Elias, you. not just, uh, but with that, the idea that um, our individual soul, you know, and, and you and I've talked about this a lot, our soul is our essence, and you cannot have a soul if you allow uh, someone else, the government or some other institution, uh, to determine what is right and wrong for you. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Uh, what was it? Um, Biden came out with this brainstorm. Um, what was it? it it's a, he, he created a, a new organization that didn't last a month. Um, it was about... Oh, yeah. Well, what's the word I'm looking for, Dan? Yeah, it was like a a, a department of um, it's disinformation. Yeah, uh, disinformation. I can't. I swear, I can't remember. Yeah, it, I I know exactly what you're talking about. It was creating basically a uh, an agency or a federal program to limit what we could we're free to think because some federal bureaucrat somewhere would uh, would tell us what is right and wrong. Right. The, the Disinformation Governance Board was yeah. the name of this thing. Yeah. And I'm thinking, as soon as I saw that, wait a minute, where in the world did the founders enumerate a power to our federal apparatus to determine truth, to determine what you and I should and must perceive, that authority was never granted to our government. No, but, it was brought from, and then that's what unleanable yeah. rights are about. It yeah. was, it was <laughs> biblically based. It was based on the Ten Commandments and on um, the the. Uh, uh, natural law that is part of uh, being a Christian. Yes, sir. 
But anyway, I don't want to interfere. No, no, I I just wanted to give you a chance and give Nathan a little bit of a break because he's been uh, carrying uh, carrying the load so far. But I, he does a, an amazingly good job of carrying the load, doesn't he? Very good speaker, too. Good enunciation. A lot of character traits that I would like to uh, incorporate in my own personality. But... Nathan, I'm just an old, worn-out coot, and uh, not 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 very much to look at and not very much to hear, but I am definitely working to return the focus of the national narrative on the individual human soul, the family, the community, and that's where I'm taking action. That's why I brought up this tactical civics thing dan has known about it but i it's new to me <clears throat> i went to their website and watched an 11 minute video which they start off talking you two guys language about the role of god in creation and our role as creative beings in creation our responsibilities to be self-owning self-governors mm-hmm. and uh, talking about how to return to our militia system through a county-authorized um, grand jury system mm-hmm. where you, me, my neighbor, your neighbor, all of us to get together and tell the uh, power-mad sociopaths running the federal government to just get out of our neighborhood. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. We'll handle how we live here, and we will do it with a high moral standard instead of a, a cultural, uh, anthropological methodology created by some idiot sitting over there in London or somewhere else. Um, so anyway, uh, let me shut up now, Dan. You know not to get me started, right? <laughs> well, well, I, I, I wanted to give, uh, I want to give Nathan a little bit of an idea, kind of where you're coming from, too. Uh, you got to listen to Nathan. I think at some point I would love to nurture a a friendship there because all I can tell you is that uh, Nathan is one person that I know that reads like you do. Elias and, and Elias has got a library like you can't imagine, and uh, I was impressed because I'm kind of like that myself. And uh, <laughs> yeah. but I was impressed when I went to your house in Willow Creek and literally uh, cases and bookcases and stacks of books and books were everywhere, and uh, most of them you had read. So. Uh, that, that's me, a good sign. Let me offer this. Speaking of books, uh, Nathan, I published a book last November, and Dan, I'm sure, will connect you and I through emails or some way or another. I would love to send you a copy of my book while you're writing your book, and uh, I would be honored if you would accept it. So, Dan, if you could hook us up later, We'll make that connection, okay? Very definitely. And uh, I think Nathan would appreciate it and enjoy it because uh, Nathan, in spite of the fact that he is one of the more 
uh, level-headed, sincerely uh, good and brilliant young men you will ever meet. Uh, he also had his rough edges as a very young man, and he would probably appreciate what was in your book. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would warn him. It's all over the place, Nathan, and uh, there are going to be things in there that anybody from whatever cultural perspective he's looking, anybody is going to find something that didn't hit him just just right. But overall, it's a cute story that incorporates a lot of our hidden history and exposes a lot of our governmental mischief. And I just I hope you find it was worth your time if you do read it. But we're going to send you one, okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure good. he will read it too. He's uh, he's just the kind of young man that will read it. And Elias is working on a second uh, volume, but his uh, it, the book that he wrote is called uh, Targeted Red uh, Oath Keepers, and it's a story about how uh, really the um, the feds came in and uh, with the idea that they had to demonize. Uh, and nullify the message of the Oath Keepers, which was basically, we will not honor any uh, program or federal law that violates the constitutional rights of the individual. Right. And uh, I had the great, I had a great privilege of being uh, one of the uh, keynote speakers at the very first Oath Keeper conference that was in Helena, Montana, I think in about 2010, maybe 2009 or 2010? 2009, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I got to talk about UN Agenda 21. So and thank uh, you for thank you for participating in that, Dan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have been there without you. And I, I, you know, I also I know Stuart was uh, part of that process too at that point and that was really early in the Oathkeeper organization and uh, you guys did a lot of great things. I'm not going to say that everything that Stuart did was 100% uh, the way I would do it but at the same time uh, the organization itself was always intended to be exactly what it said and that was a group of uh, people in law enforcement, in uh, military, in um, emergency services, and things like that, that guaranteed that they would honor their oath under the Constitution. Yes, yeah, Stuart told me early on, in order to get me on board with working with him there, uh, it was President Adams in 1798 addressing the Massachusetts militia when he told them, that in this country, the oath is considered a sacred obligation. Mm -hmm. And that rang a bell up in my crazy little head, and I thought, well, yeah, if if the police and military would question their orders to verify their constitutionality before they followed that order, we wouldn't have had, for example, 
the My Lai Massacre, 1968 in Vietnam, where our troops murdered over 400 women and children uh, following orders. But, but what was really fascinating, as soon as we began that organization, the chain of command of authoritarian power in the structure of our governmental systems, especially in law enforcement and mostly in military, uh, we we were attacked pretty viciously through their surrogates, the ADL and the SPLC and ILK. So the reason was generals and police chiefs, sheriffs, do not want their boots on the ground to question an order. They want the order immediately followed. And I, I was trained that way in the Marine Corps. If you have a problem with an order, you follow that order first, and later, after you've completed following your order, then you write a report and send it up the chain of command questioning that order, but don't stop to think about it. When we say jump, you jump. And that's Marine Corps uh, uh, warrior mentality mindset that was hammered into my head and every other Marine. And I'm sure police, sheriffs, uh, all the Navy, the Army, everybody, they're, they're taught that, they're trained in that, they're conditioned that way. And here comes Stuart Rhodes with this idea. Hey, wait a minute, guys. Let's stop and think. Uh, you know, um, Joseph Hanneman at Epoch Times interviewed this FBI agent who is a whistleblower now and has been talked to Congress because he was running with a SWAT team in Florida when a his commander told him, we got to take the SWAT team and arrest this guy on misdemeanor charge for just happening to be in the crowd on January 6th. And All he right. had to do it. He had to do it. Uh, he's been a guest on my program, incidentally. <laughs> yeah, but, that's a, yeah. Uh, he, he had to do it with a SWAT team on a misdemeanor charge. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the guy refused to do it, and he actually said, I took an oath. Mm -hmm. Okay, he actually has said that. That's so, Stephen Friend. Friend, and, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, he definitely. Okay. Well, listen, yeah. Elias, uh, first of all, I, I want to let Nathan, I want to get Nathan back into the discussion. We could go <laughs> on like this for a long time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Elias was a Marine. Uh, he was a, a combat Marine in Vietnam, and uh, that is really kind of the point where your epiphany uh, came because he was a gung-ho Marine when he went to Vietnam. And by the time he got back, uh, he uh, had the, I guess, planted the basic seeds to turn into a full-blown hippie. But uh, <laughs> in, in the process, uh, uh, recognized uh, the importance of our soul and our conscience, and that is uh, what you have been 
you have been promoting ever since. So, uh, Nathan, I, I, I'm bringing that in because I, I do think at some point, I mean, I, I would love to see you guys communicate back and forth. Uh, this is someone who you, you could uh, uh, certainly learn a great deal from. Uh, Nathan is, as far as I'm concerned, he is my legacy in the state of Montana. I will do everything in my human power to uh, help him to basically replace me with an incredible upsurge in brilliance uh, when my time is uh, over that I've got someone taking my place who has much more knowledge and talent and ability than I ever had. So, okay, we'll leave it at that. Nathan, uh, please, you, you've, uh, you've been, uh, you got a, a really good break there, but I want to get you back into this because what we were talking about is so incredibly important in understanding the foundation of our whole, not just our culture, but our whole civilization. And then the most important thing, what law really is in the United States. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I'll touch a couple things. Elias brought up one, the tactical civics, and then just the concept of oath. Um, because oath is a closely, a closely related word to covenant. Um, and, you know, police officers and others in authority that take an oath of office, that oath of office is really to, in our context in the constitutional Republic is, is to serve and safeguard, um, the reserved powers and jurisdiction of the individuals, um, that reside within their jurisdiction. Um, so if, if a police officer gets told to come and take guns away from an individual and his property, um, that's a violation of his oath of office because he's bound by oath to uphold those fundamental compacts, mm -hmm. which according to our founding fathers and others are inviolable, um, that safeguard the life, liberty, and property of those individuals. Um, and the right to possess arms and to protect one's person is a pretty long history in, in English common law and, and just human history. And that reality, it's pretty clear. Um, but Thomas Hobbes said, justice is the keeping of covenants. Injustice is the breaking of covenants. And I think that's the the root, that's where we are. And you could put oaths in that place of covenants. Um, when you have oath breaking, you have injustice. Um, doesn't matter what office or person. And that's true on the human level in our marriages to our business relationships and the communities we live in and contractually and in our civic duties and responsibilities, if you're in positions of power, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a, we don't use the term magistrate any, anymore, but, uh, you know, I serve in two different capacities in the state of Montana. Um, one at a local level, a supervisor on the Petroleum County Conservation District. Um, and then also as a vice chair on the Montana Grass Conservation Commission, which has 
statutory responsibility and oversight and jurisdiction to oversee the administration of the state grazing districts in Montana. And um, so I take my oath of office very seriously. Um, my oath is not to any person. The oath I took is to the Constitution of the state of Montana and the federal constitution um, and the laws that are passed in pursuance thereof. Um, as long so, as they're constitutionally passed. Yeah, e exactly. Um, so the statutes that, uh, for instance, like in my position as a commission commissioner, you know, we have legislatively delegated functions. The very first paragraph in Title 76 of Montana Code for the Grass Commission is to one of our purposes is to safeguard the livestock industry. And then through through Title 76, there's uh, there's functions and powers and authorities to effectuate those purposes. Um, and part of the problem is, is we have jurisdictions like the Grass Commission across our states. Um, but usually they're composed of people that show up to one or two meetings a year and check a box and approve the minutes from the last meeting and go home and that's it. Um, we can't maintain a constitutional republic of self-government if the people serving in those positions of oath mm -hmm. aren't keeping uh, their oaths. Because in a way, you're breaking your oath by not exercising your jurisdictional powers and functions on behalf of the people you took the oath <laughs> to serve. <laughs> so... So I try to do that in the realm of, of influence that I'm in uh, and allow the law to uh, to speak for itself. It's it's difficult in many ways because you're dealing with in bureaucracy in the state and different things. But um, and I in a, in a meeting a while back, I actually broke down a term um, jurisdiction. I love the term jurisdiction because juris is law and diction is to dictate or to speak. Um. And I said that in the context of, for instance, like the Grass Commission or any other authoritative board out there, you have you have no jurisdiction if you're not speaking, if you're not communicating the law. So, and that starts, I like what Elias said too, of the individual and then mentioning the home and the family. Because if you read Algernon Sidney's work on the discourses of government, he makes a point that a man in his home and his family by itself constitutes a political force in society. So even if you're not, you know, in a magisterial or a, an appointed or elected position out there, uh, just being a, a one, an individual, but two, and and more importantly, a father and, and a head of a home, um, you have jurisdictional responsibility of that of that. Castle. <laughs> it's the castle doctrine. A man's home is his castle. And I'm the representative of my home on behalf of my wife and my little girls. And so it starts there. And then when you engage in the more peripheral areas, as I do in, in this. So so that ties into this, the tactical civics, Elias, is you know, I, I am a little bit familiar with tactical civics because of Steve Wagner, like uh, Dan mentioned. And I don't know where Steve is. I think he had a stroke, and I hope he he's did have a stroke. Now. Yeah, he's recovering, but it's slow. Yeah. So I don't know if he's still a, the main contact and lead in Montana for tactical civics or not. But um, I don't think from what I've read about that. it. No, what I've read about it and looked at, you know, I, I'm not involved with it directly. But I guess what I will say though is I am 
actively involved in tactical civics um, just mm -hmm. by the work I do. Um, I'm not, maybe I need to get a little more connected with that, that organization and, and whatnot. But uh, I guess what I would say is, you know, tactical civics starts in, it starts with the individual, but the individual has to come to a place of taking responsibility um, and having a purpose, something to stand on and stand for. Um, that's what creates leaders that actually stand for something. And so my passion is to provide a foundation to, to, to put point people back to the old paths, uh, to have a foundation. You know, if I want people to replicate the work I'm doing, not replicate it necessarily, but to carry on the torch, like Dan was talking about me carrying his torch on or whatever, um, you gotta, you gotta lay a foundation, um, for them to step onto and, and, and move on. And I like what, uh, in the, in the book of Romans, it says other men have labored and we enter into their labors. Um, and I wouldn't do, so in summary, I wouldn't be doing half of the things I do in tactical civics or being engaged as an individual in our culture, society, and civic process if it wasn't for me being firmly established in in the scriptures and in those, those fundamental principles. Mm -hmm. So my passion, I'm starting to shift my passion from, I do a lot of policy work, engaging with agencies and whatnot, but I'm starting to shift to try to do more educational type type things to um, reconnect the next, the generation coming up, uh, those who are interested in hearing with, with that heritage, uh, with those old paths. And, and I think there is a Renaissance, just a quick note. Uh, my wife went into St. Vincent's and Bellings a week ago, and I found it interesting. The two number one boy names for last year was Noah and Ezra. That was interesting. It's not Muhammad yet <laughs> in Montana, <laughs> but Noah and Ezra, um, two Bible names. I don't know who these people are that name their kids, those names. And I don't know how much knowledge they have of our heritage, but the fact they're naming their kids, those names tells me at the, at the least that there's, that confirms my view that there's a little bit of a renaissance of people looking, you know, back to our fathers and, and the old paths and, you know, how, what did they do? And, and what are the warnings that they gave to us? Um, so like I told Dan talking on the phone the other day, that's the people we need to meet. Those couples that are going in and having babies and naming them, naming them Noah and Ezra, those are the people that need to be better and more firmly connected. They may already be somewhat connected, but better established in their heritage and in those fundamental principles. Um, and then they can be a force in the world. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Steve Wagner and uh, tactical civics. Uh, uh, when I was a county commissioner, uh, Steve gave me a, a book that was a very important writing, and it's really the essence or the foundation of tactical mm -hmm. civics, and it's called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate. And uh, that is the idea that government is local. It comes from the individual 
and everything should be looked at as the the highest uh, sovereign being the closest to the individual. And everything from there goes the opposite direction as far as its importance in the role of government. Well, that's that's why we have political subdivisions is to check higher government. Right. Um, but you need people of integrity to be in those positions at the lower magisterial levels, hence the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. They're not lesser in the context of being lesser in, 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 in the human context. They're lesser in the context of locality. Right. You know, you may be a magistrate in a more limited region, but it's the responsibility of those lesser magistrates to check higher power and check higher government when they're stepping outside of their covenants and outside of their oaths. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Matthew through well, I think is the name of the guy that, that wrote that book, the, the that doctrine of the lesser magistrates. And he, and that's the thing is it's actually a duty. It's we're duty bound to just same with our fellow man. Wasn't it, wasn't it Cain? You know, am I my brother's keeper? You know, 10 minutes after he slit his brother's throat, <laughs> <laughs> you know, talk about a disillusioned statement. Am I my brother's keeper right after you just slew your own brother? Um, so the responsibility and duty to hold one another accountable starts with our neighbor, starts with our fellow man. Um, and how much more does that apply when we deal with our fellow neighbors and people in, in government and positions of power? And it starts with ourselves, because obviously, if we cannot control our excesses, then we have no right to try to control anyone else's excesses. Um, That is the whole idea, I think, of uh, the Protestant Reformation is the understanding of the idea of um, uh, personal choice and uh, having a responsibility to uh, make good choices and if you don't make those good choices, like you said, God isn't directly there to say, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna burn you in hell right now for uh, making those bad choices." He has given us the opportunity through discernment to make bad choices, and then to correct those bad choices, to use the the good ideas that are part of our our better self, our soul, to correct the bad choices and uh, to make more good choices. That's the power of discernment. Yeah, well, and I think uh, our founders also said that the only way our system will prevail and, and last is through virtue. Um, but I want to I th- I want to clarify something with the term virtue because most people think about virtue as just being goodness and you know and that's true to some extent but the way the Puritans and and I believe our founders under ter- understood the term virtue was in the context virtue is 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 a humble suspicion of your own goodness <laughs> with deference to the perseverance of God. Hmm. Um, Love it. so virtue isn't all these good things. I, you know, I'm a virtuous guy cause I do all the right things, 
true virtue is has is a healthy humble self-suspicion of your own goodness <laughs> so and questioning it uh <laughs> yeah but that's what's necessary <laughs> that's excellent that's excellent see this guy's a great philosopher elias i mean what a what a brilliant young man what a great um uh, perception what a great um i guess what i would say a basic understanding of what his soul is all about and what human nature is all about mm -hmm. yeah it's a pleasure to sit here and listen to this guy go mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah absolutely well go ahead keep going nathan because you're saying a lot of really solid things well, with well, with the I just wanted to say that because I that was a discussion I've been having with with another individual is on, and I'm actually trying to fuse that into this work I'm writing is is what ver, you know our founders said these things, but what do those things actually mean? Um, and it's back to what we discussed in the beginning of this this program is that uh, all of us, um, even the best of us. Um, without the prevenient work of, of God's grace and the spirit um, restraining in our lives where we can be subject to corrupting influences, especially if we are among the few of us that climb up a ladder into positions of authority and government and in, even, at, even at local or state levels. I mean, there's many, many, many competing forces in your flesh uh, is 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 open to being appealed to on self-pride and self-righteousness and and all those things that like I said it's so so I like what you said Dan you're the one that said it is even our own selves you know not just checking one another we need to check ourselves and and that's I think that's part of the responsibility that I alluded to earlier of an individual has to take responsibility and part of taking that responsibility, you know, that's what happened to my, in my life 10 years ago is I was, you know, pointing my finger, you know, everybody else, you know, I've been lied to, you know, but it took me coming to the point of realizing I've been lying to myself. <laughs> it's one thing to say, I admit I've been lied to, it's a lot tougher to get to the point of realizing I'm, I'm the problem. Um, and from there, God can start to actually do something with you. And, uh, but full circle back to the virtue concept is we need, uh, people that are giving deference to the law, to the word that are suspicious of their own goodness and, and defer to the Lord. And therefore I think become usable by the Lord in the world um, and what happens, it's like the Isaiah experience, you know, Isaiah, the first five chapters of Isaiah, he's pointing out all the issues of Israel and the people. And, and then he comes into the presence of God and he says, I live amongst the people of unclean lips and I'm just one of them. <laughs> and, but God cleansed him. Uh, God, God brought him out of that. And Isaiah was a prophet to a nation in, dis in disintegration. And I would say we uh, are in a nation that is disintegrating. Um, and we have an example in the past. And and back to going back to the old past, it's the same message, Jeremiah. He's he's a prophet 
that said that return to the old paths um to to the nation of israel as they split the nation and set up kings and and then ultimately went into captivity uh and that's not a good direction to go so i i agree with elias earlier on there's hope in the individual and it's it's one person at a time uh, coming to a knowledge of the truth and even even if we don't redeem western civilization to a state of well-being and where it should be under under christian ethic we still have a duty and responsibility um to perpetuate liberty uh and be ambassadors of the law of god in the world uh wherever our influence is and and if we're reaching individual people um the word tells me that the meek will inherit the earth um so that's we need to have our hearts our minds and affections on the things above where christ is seated at the right hand of god and the day is coming while he will make his enemies his footstool um so that's what's coming but in the interim i'm not i'm not of the 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 sex out there that just put my feet up in my cozy chair and quote john 316 i i believe there's a christian duty and responsibility um you know if if, if our forefathers did that we wouldn't have the foxes but right. murders right exactly god does not uh think that our responsibility is to be sheep he thinks our responsibility is to be lions of truth and to do the responsible, proper thing uh, with justification in his word. Exactly. Well, and you know, you bring up, bring up the sheep. Uh, an interesting thing there is, you know, G Jesus said, uh, my street sheep will not go after the voice of a stranger. And, you know, you look at the quote unquote Christian church in the West early in the Psalm, Psalm two, I think it says, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly." In the last three years, we had a, an example of ungodly counsel in, in, in many areas through the COVID stuff to every, everything else that's been going on that most of the congregation in the West has basically walked in um and then you connect that to what jesus said my sheep will not follow after the voice of a stranger mm -hmm. so so there's there's a problem within our churches also that are not firmly established in the word obviously and are are going after strange voices in relationship to truth and accommodating the things of this world um, so with that said, though, I, I wanted to, one other thing I wanted to touch on the program today is, and this will shift gears a little bit back into okay. the, um, uh, our civic responsibility and where we are. Another thing I've been looking at and, and studying over, there's something called the, in England, the Royal prerogative. And that stood for the King's non-statutory power. <laughs> and that was really the crux of the issue in colonial America leading up to <laughs> the revolutionary war was the reassertion of the Royal prerogative. And it's also, I would submit the issue we're facing today in federal administrative bureaucracy as we have government overreach through federal agencies and departments 
that are reasserting the royal prerogative. Our constitution does not vest the royal prerogative. It vests the executive power. The executive power is limited to executing the law. Mm -hmm. There is no non-statutory executive power under our constitutional republic, except in, in the extremity of situations. Um, so just really quick here, the self-governing charters under English common law developed over 150 years leading up to the Revolutionary War. Around the 1740s and 1750s, the royal governors in the colonies witnessed firsthand this development of self-government and saw it as an intrusion into the royal prerogative. The colonies claimed the advantage of the great moral principles of habeas corpus, trial by jury, popular representation, and a free press. And if you read the instructions that were sent to the royal governors from England, um, they were aimed at restraining the press and refusing to allow the colonists to the writ of habeas corpus. The instructions further maintained to maintain the prerogative in successive measures brought forward the parliament because remember it wasn't just an issue with the king the parliament was was out of line in england as well right because the right. parliament overrode the colonial charters in order to enlarge the board of trade and take note this was 30 years before the declaration of independence mm -hmm. and the conclusion by the parliament that was reached was to revise the local governments and remember, these are local governments with legislative bodies, courts, judiciaries, militias that existed for 150 years and developed over 150 years mm -hmm. in the colonies. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, our revolution was so successful is because the colonies had the existing governmental frameworks in place already. Um, they didn't create something new. They <laughs> reasserted what they already had against a overzealous king in parliament that was trying to rob them through non-statutory powers in the royal prerogative. So and, in the and, uh, Nathan, part of the, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm just uh, adding this, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, you're but, good. Um, part, part of that was uh, a result of the French and Indian War because the, the monarch, when it, be, it was in his best interest, then he allowed the colonies to assert themselves uh, because they were at a, uh, a point where they were fighting against uh, helping the British against the French. And so, you know, he kind of created his, his own, uh, I guess, his own demise, although it had been going on well before that. But that's when it really solidified is that the uh, French and Indian War, because for uh, 20 years prior to the uh, the revolution, a lot of these things like militias were instituted in a in a very, very formal way uh, to uh, be an aid to the crown. But it turned out to be as Achilles heel. Exactly. The interesting thing is the parallels you see, the methods they were using to to rob the people of self-governing 
was controlling the press, mm -hmm. um, robbing them of the writ of habeas corpus, taking away popular representation. So it was the general assemblies, your local magistrates, that regarded this royal prerogative to be illegal. And that, that evoked in the colonies a sturdy defense of the rights that they held to be constitutional. And take note, this was under the English Constitution. The, our Constitution wasn't even in place at the time. Um, so even then, they were they were going back to the, the original compacts of the English common law and the English Constitution. And but but nonetheless, it was a steady aim of their of the governors and their superiors to check the growth of popular power. Well, on the other hand, it was the object of the assemblies, your local assemblies, to protect their constitutional rights. And in the colonies, those assemblies who tried to protect those rights were faced directly, just like we are today, with the indefinite, imperious, and mysterious claims of the royal prerogative, which were urged by needy governors with an arrogance and conceit that made the claims doubly offensive. Mm -hmm. So that's a matter of history. And, and like, as you said, Dan, the French and Indian Wars tied into that same time period in that 30 years leading to the revolution. Um, but, you know, most people just hear about the Tea Party and tea and taxation and this and that. But there was a long, mm -hmm. a longer process of grievances. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson lists many of those grievances. <laughs> They're listed out. Uh, th that's why First Amendment says we have the right to petition our government because the founding philosophical assertion of our founding fathers was a list of grievances. Right. Um, so, but I just wanted to mention, bring that forward with the royal prerogative because I think it parallels very closely to what we're seeing uh, today because our constitutional republic did not set up a monarchy. It did not vest any power in a, in a royal prerogative invested the executive power and and the other interesting thing that ties into that is even william blackstone did not consider even in england the royal prerogative was limited um mm -hmm. even blackstone said royal royal prerogative was itself within the confines of parliamentary statute <laughs> mm -hmm. so even in england it was it was an overreach to assert the royal prerogative in many contexts and, and that goes back to the english civil war and cromwell where they tried the king for treason and chopped his head off um but uh yet again another term that's not in modern circulation royal prerogative but that is exactly what we have taking place with the, within the federal administrative branch uh, that is mm -hmm. claiming all these non-statutory powers to fundamentally transition the American system into a totally alternate system. Exactly. That, um, I mean, they they could uh, use that uh, royal prerogative as an interchangeable term with executive orders. So exactly. And if you, if you look at the climate policy agenda, that's, it's mm -hmm. none of these things, you will not find anything in statute that the Congress has passed that says anything about 30 by 30 targets, 50% of CO2 reductions by 2050. None of those timetables and targets have gone through the bicameral process the Constitution demands. Those right. are all being developed by international bodies and being adopted and, and propagated by executive edict into domestic policy 
to basically destroy our natural resource industries and make us dependent on foreign nations. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what's happening. Um, so, so right here, William Blackstone, I pulled the quote up William Blackstone and his commentaries on the laws of England, by the way, this was the second most cited document by the framers of the founding documents. And in Montana, by the way, Montana Constitution, Montana Code, the judiciary in Montana to this day by Montana statute is supposed to be ruling according to English common law. That's in Montana Code 2023. Um, that deals with our abortion issue. That deals with a whole bunch of issues if our judiciary in the state simply ruled according to English common law. But anyway, so here's Blackstone. He said it was it were endless to enumerate all the affirmative acts of parliament wherein justice is directed to be done according to the law of the land. And what that law is, every subject knows or may know if he pleases, for it depends not upon the arbitrary will of any judge, but is permanent, fixed and unchangeable unless by the authority of parliament. It is declared that the pretended power of suspending or dispensing with laws or the execution of laws by the regal authority, which is a related term to the royal prerogative, without the consent of parliament is illegal. It goes on and says not only the substantial part or judicial decisions of the law, but also the formal part or method of proceeding cannot be altered but by parliament for if once those outworks were demolished there would be an inlet to all manner of innovation in the body of law itself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. folks that's happening that's, right now right the now that's exactly what we're seeing right now in our own country yep the very procedures that are that are set by the congress mm -hmm. that executive departments are supposed to be following not only are they not following them the executive branch right now is doing a wholesale regulatory rewrite of virtually all the procedures that govern the cost-benefit analysis for their decisions and their rulemaking as we speak mm -hmm. without direct congressional delegation to change those rules and procedures on the basis that they're doing it. And it's Nathan, causing can, a mess. It, it is causing a mess. Nathan, can I... Uh... I, I would like to mention the fact that you have actually written a, I, I guess I would call it a, uh, uh, a brief of sorts, a document uh, that attorneys general from all over the country can challenge the executive edicts that are going out under the 30 by 30 program. Talk a little bit about that because Elias needs to hear a little about that. Yeah. So I, I published a document at the beginning of this year. I started working on it beginning of the Biden administration. It's called All Roads Lead to Paris. It's an administrative chronology of the two climate change executive orders and structural violations of them, of the original compacts of our constitution. So it's a document that basically tracked the first two years of the Biden administration and showed, first, here's what they called for and what they want to do with their reductions and, and targets and timetables. And then I, then I linked and hyperlinked and categorized, not exhaustively, but key elements of how those things are being implemented through executive departments on the ground. Um, and then the last section of that document 
shows how it's in direct contravention to the United States Constitution. Because one of the things we have taking place, you mentioned earlier, Dan, these other states like California and Washington, uh, when Biden came back into office, he rejoined the United States into the Paris Accord unilaterally without the consent of the Senate. Under the Trump administration, Trump pulled out of that. Obama had come into it. Trump pulled out of it 2017. The same day Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord, three governors, New York, California, and Washington, formed a coalition of state governors to uphold those international compacts. Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution explicitly prohibits states from entering into foreign agreements and compacts in any respect whatsoever along those lines. So I've built so one avenue of the document. There's multiple actionable items that I that I fleshed out in this document, um, but one of them is is the violation of the covenants and the compacts by these coalitions of states, which are 23 or 24 state governors now that are coal coalesced together in this in this climate change initiative to uphold these international agreements. And of course, now the federal government's on board with the Biden administration. And what's happened is these states have become inequitable beneficiaries of the Grow Back, the, the Build Back Better Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. It has they have billions of dollars earmarked for green infrastructure and development, which I'm I submit uh, these coalition states that are uh, seeking to uh, accomplish these objectives are inequitable beneficiaries of those dollars. Meanwhile, the same federal government administration is hamstringing our oil and gas industries and our carbon-based industries in non-coalition states like Montana, Wyoming, Utah, the other half of the states. So we have a huge issue with the climate policy objectives unraveling under the Biden administration, pushing whole of government, whole of economy, that's the document's words, not mine, objectives um, to transition the North American economy uh, to, to coincide with internationally established objectives and timetables. Totally unconstitutional. There's no basis uh, in the Constitution that grants those kind of powers and functions to state governors, and nor can the president unilaterally without two-thirds approval of the Senate uh, you would think anyways, should not be able to throw the nation into these uh, processes. But the fact is, it's happening. We're, we have our coal industry, all, all the leasability in coal in Montana is under attack, record low oil and gas leasing. Um, I'm still paying over $4 a gallon for my fuel. Um, other, other people are, are facing that. And in this document, I have one statement in there. I, I, I paint this as being a regulatory takings of the entire population <laughs> because that's what this climate that's policy what it is. is doing. Yeah. Because the inflationary results are robbing people of their hard-earned wages and money to be able to take care of their families, their homes, and their communities. Um, so so that, uh, that doesn't deal with the whole, what you mentioned, I guess, Dan, of going through the nitty-gritty of it, but... I will say that's a document, and I can I can send that over to, to you, Elias, if you're interested in thumbing yeah. through it. But yeah. uh, I also do work equipping the record on these rulemaking processes and calling out these agencies in their rulemaking process in real time as well. So, so that's part of the work that I do is is I help 
What I do is I help equip the lesser magistrates with the technical support they need to put very strong documentation on on the right desks. So, and, we're and I, Nathan, that. I will say you've got probably, in my mind, you have one of the keenest understanding of law and rule of law and color of law of any person that I know, including uh, quite a large number of attorneys that couldn't carry your lunch, uh, frankly, that are. Uh, bar certified attorneys. Uh, uh, so obviously, having a law degree and passing the bar has nothing to do with a clear knowledge and understanding of uh, constitutional law and the color of law. Yeah, well, that's so that's the other side of it, Dan, is how do we get more people? <laughs> uh solidified in uh in those foundations and because you can't start by just reading through all those bureaucratic rules you need to be established in in sound sound law and in the basis of our constitution the scriptures the ten commandments um the task is is taking those frameworks and applying them in the, in the modern administrative state um, the benefit we have is, as I said earlier, with our grazing regulations, the Code of Federal Regulations, many of these things we're talking about are embedded still to this day in the law of the land, mm -hmm. not only in the Constitution, but in statute and in, mm -hmm. in federal regulations. And what's happened is federal agencies now virtually they all function basically off of policy manuals and guidance documents. Right. Right. They're not rules, even functioning. Not from the laws. Not laws. They're functioning under rules. And they're rules that the agencies create outside of the color of true statutory law. Yes. Exactly. So we need to get them back to the law. And that's what we do essentially is we 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 brush their policy manuals to the side of the table and we bring forward the organic authorities. And the benefit, the biggest benefit that federal statutes have uh, in relationship to local magistrates is like the Federal Land Policy Management Act, for example, um, is the cornerstone authority that governs the administration of public lands in the West. Um, there's some problems with that body of law, but the benefit of it is, is that it's strongly codified the coordination doctrine that requires those federal agencies to maintain consistency with locally established policy. And, and to take into consideration uh, your local self-governing systems. But the problem is, is if we're not asserting and, and, and exercising our jurisdiction at the local level in the rulemaking processes, there's nothing for them to maintain consistency with. So what we're doing is, it's like what Isaiah says, is when, when wickedness comes in like a flood, God raises up a standard against it. So in the administrative realm, that's some of the work that I do is we we – we redirect those agencies back to the organic authorities that constitute the the basis of that gives them any authority whatsoever, and we still have some good good law in place in those statutes uh, that we can apply. But if we don't apply them, they're just going to keep functioning on policy manuals and run roughshod over the region and and do what they want to do. Well. Um... Nathan, talk about that because you've done that, <clears throat> and with the uh, uh, state lands uh, 
um, committee or council, uh, you, you've had some pretty effective uh, things happen, haven't you? Well, you know, for, for, like the Montana Grass Conservation Commission, for instance, which I serve on, um, that has le legislatively delegated functions to safeguard the livestock industry in Montana. We oversee the administration of state grazing districts. We also have legislatively delegated powers to serve as an advisory capacity to, to advise our county commissioners in the development of uniform policy. So, so we've been exploring uh, the and 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 moving forward uh, and actuating those authorities and powers and functions of the commission to do just that, to to develop strong uniform policy that that reasserts those organic authorities to safeguard and protect the livestock and interests and the free market economies that make up our rural resource dependent counties in Montana. Um, some counties individually have good policy, some have no policy, some have nothing, you know, and we're not out to draft policy, some new system of policy. Our goal is to just, like I said, to reaffirm and reassert existing organic authorities in a uniform policy framework. I call it a policy wall, like Nehemiah building the walls around Jerusalem, but it's not a physical wall. It's a, it's a document. And it's not it's not people coming in through the gates. It's regulations and rules coming in through those gates. So we're going to build a policy. You know, the vision is build a policy framework, which some counties have already done this on an individual capacity. But to build a policy framework, and this is back to the tactical civics, uh, build a policy framework based on those local perspectives and local self-government to protect those industries and those property rights interests. And then when federal agencies come in and issue rules that govern and affect those 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 rights and those industries, they have to come through those gates. Mm -hmm. And hopefully the goal is we our county commissioners need to be the watchmen standing on that wall watching those gates. Exactly. And like I said, it's not people coming in and through those gates. That's where the federal rules and regulations come in. Because what do walls represent? In the ancient, ancient world, walls represented the preservation of internal self-government and protection from external influence. Mm -hmm. So a policy wall in, in, in that context does the same thing. It, it preserves from external influence from outside swivel chair experts out of DC and preserves local self-governing interests of the local people who actually live on the ground, work the ground, pay their local taxes and contribute to their communities. Mm -hmm. It's fundamental. Um, the fact is we have law. We don't have to go pass a bunch of legislation to effectuate this. It's already there. Mm -hmm. We just need leadership and people who understand the principles of self-government uh, to develop strong policy and to, and to carry forward the traditions of our forefathers and safeguard life, liberty, and property of our constituency. Um, and, and that's local self-government. And to understand their oath of office and be willing to carry the carry the water, do the work that's necessary to assure that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I hate to say it, guys, we're out of time already. Uh, it goes fast. It really does. Uh, Nathan, very quickly, talk about what you're working on. You're actually putting together a group of uh, landowners to uh, create a I guess I would call it a resource to make sure that uh, uh, local 
local uh, individual property owners and so forth are properly represented by a group that understands property rights and understands the role of uh, private property in agriculture. Would you uh, maybe talk about that? Yeah, just real quick. So I have a for-profit business, Landmark Resource Firm, which is the business that I do uh, some consultancy and professional services to help uh, uh, local governments and other entities engage in the federal rulemaking process. So I've created a separate entity, Landmark Resource MT, uh, which is a private membership association, functions 100% in the private domain. It is not a public entity. Uh, it functions under the 5th and 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Um, it is a non-incorporated entity. Uh, me and my wife serve as the trustees of the organization. Nobody owns it. Um, so I'm creating that. It's basically how churches functioned up until Lyndon Johnson in the 501c3 <laughs> code yeah. um, as private membership associations. So I've, I'm creating that framework and developing a membership basis because um, most of the work I do is sweat equity in, in a large extent. So I'm creating a, I'm treating it like a missionary into the civil sphere. Um, so, so I'm creating a membership basis of property rights interests and local officials, uh, representatives and others uh, to support the mission and, and what I'm, the work I'm doing and also to be involved, to equip them also. So it's them to support me in the work I'm doing, but it's also for me to support them and to help better equip them to be be a force in their sphere uh, as well. Mm -hmm. um, so that's still coming online. It's It's been a long process in development, but uh, uh, we'll have a follow-up. I keep saying this to you, Dan, but we'll have a follow-up program and we can maybe flash out specifically that discussion. Um, we need because, to do that. Because that's... Uh, that's where I'm going to try to put some wheels on some of the work I'm doing and create more of the educational components to, to, to take all the, the high level work we're doing on the administrative stuff and, to, and then to distill that down into, into presentation formats and, and dissemination of information that, that the average person out there can, can, can look at and be briefed on without them taking all the time it takes to, to tra traverse all the issues. Right, right, exactly. Well, um, it looks like uh, Aaron is ready to go with, uh, uh, we're followed up by the campaign show, but I think uh, Patrick Howley uh, may not be available right now. So it looks like AD Aaron is ready to come in and take over. Uh, Elias, thank you for joining us. I think this was uh, this was a good opportunity for you to get to meet uh, Nathan, and Nathan, a great opportunity for you to get uh, to meet uh, Elias. So um, I'll, I'll uh, behind the scenes here. I'll make sure that uh, I get all the emails and contact information for both of you, and um, I look forward to this as being a. A, a, a very welcome uh, friendship that you will uh, develop over time. So, thank you, Dan. Thanks. Yeah, All thanks, right. Dan. Nathan, All right. Salute, man. Yeah. Hey, yep. buddy. Take care. All right. Thank you both again. Join us again next Sunday for connecting the dots, and also join us again on Tuesday morning, uh, nine a.m. to eleven a.m. Mountain Time for another program on connecting the dots.
from the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee. Across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea. From Detroit down to Houston, New York to L.A. Where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say. There ain't no doubt. 